Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I love Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. I hate that people are judged by one number, this stupid thing called an IQ. Like you could take this multiple choice test with 50 questions on it, and suddenly you have this number that sticks with you for the rest of your life, and it makes some people like ultra confident and other people feel miserable when they see that number. Howard Gardner uh, developed this entire theory of multiple intelligences where we don't have just one intelligence, we have many, like visual spatial intelligence, linguistics slash verbal intelligence, mathematical intelligence, bodily kinesthetic intelligence, musical intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence, and on and on. There's a, there's a few more. So Howard and I discuss his theories. We also discuss his notion of synthesizing all these intelligences. And he's written books about all these things. They're excellent. I highly recommend them. Look Howard Gardner up on Amazon. And he has a new book that recently came out about college. We don't talk about that. We're going to save that for another podcast. But we do talk about all of these different intelligences plus the importance of synthesizing them. And that's what makes a truly wise person. Let's put it that way. So here's Howard Gardner. So the theory of multiple intelligences, as opposed to like the theory of one intelligence that a so-called IQ test might measure, to me seems kind of obvious that we have, you know, a body kinesthetic intelligence, we have spatial intelligence, language intelligence, mathematical intelligence, but there's like two camps. It seems one camp believes that IQ is the only measurement of intelligence and there's nothing else. And then there's the camp that believes in the work you proposed in Frames of Mind, that there are multiple intelligences. Maybe can you describe to the listeners who might not have heard of this before exactly what the theory is, and then we can talk about why there's dissent. Sure. Actually, when I began the research for this book and this endeavor, I didn't even really have IQ tests in my mind. Uh, I wasn't sort of trained in that tradition, though, of course, like everybody else in the West, I knew about the tests. I was trying to figure out how the mind was organized. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time working with children, but probably more important with brain damaged patients. And the most salient things about brain damage is depending on where you have trauma, you lose different kinds of abilities. And every day I would see people who were completely musical, but couldn't do language or people who were very good in language, but couldn't find their way around. And uh, so the intuition was that we have different human faculties. It's a very old intuition. But then thanks to other people, I got five years of support. This is in the late 70s and early 80s to survey huge bodies of literature in biology, genetics, neurology, anthropology, education, psychology, and so on. And I came up with the idea that there are several semi-autonomous intellectual faculties. That's a fancy way of saying, you know, we've got different kinds of intelligence. And if you only believe in one, you can't really account for the variety of human behavior. So I wrote a 400-page book called Frames of Mind, The Theory of Multiple Intelligences. And uh, in, in the 
Andy Warhol spirit. That was my 15 minutes of fame. Um, and uh, although, although here we are uh, 39 years later having you on the podcast. So it could be 39 years of fame. We don't know. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, for many people, it was very intuitive. And anybody who has a lot of children of their own, whether they're parents or teachers or coaches, will know that people have different profiles of intelligence. So in that sense, it's, it's quite intuitive. But every discipline has its own habits and its own way of carrying research. And for 100 years in the West, it basically means Western Europe and the United States, places influenced by those countries, there's a belief, there's a single thing called IQ that uh, you can assess it pretty well with a bunch of short answer questions. And then you can tell how smart somebody is. Many of us, I guess, carry around those two different ideas in our mind without even realizing that they're in contradiction. Namely, somebody's got a high IQ, so he or she's smart. Or on the other hand, well, this person's good with language, this person's good with music, this person's good with math, this person can't handle an interpersonal dilemma if their life depends on it. So we carry, in a sense, these two different uh, concepts in our mind. But if you're a card-carrying psychometrician, those are people who test for intelligence, you've got a lot riding on there being a single kind of intelligence. Now, if I were trying to defend that point of view, what I say is, look, I'm, we're particularly interested in who will do well in a modern industrial society, and therefore, who will be good students and who will do well in school and therefore will maybe do well in life. And if we have half an hour, an hour, we give them a bunch of questions and we, we basically predict their school success. Now, what I did was to say, yeah, these, um, these questions in an IQ test determine how good you are with language. Can you appreciate synonyms and antonyms and do analogies? And how good are you with math? Can you do uh, not just a, you know, simple addition or subtraction problems, but, but classification and things like that. Um, some IQ tests, as you may know, also get at spatial abilities. But if something has to go from an IQ test, it'll be a spatial ability because those are more difficult to test very quickly. So the defense of IQ, nobody would say, if you know somebody's IQ, you could tell whether they'd be a good musician. Or if you know somebody's good IQ, you could tell whether they could understand themselves better or even whether they'd be good with dealing with other people. So uh, I, don't, I think uh, IQ types in psychology don't claim that their tests are testing the only faculty. What they would be saying is we're claiming, we're testing the faculties that matter in school and Hernstein and Murray, who are the most famous writers in this tradition, uh, authors of the bell curve would say, yeah, and if you want to succeed in the post-industrial society, you know, if you have only one measure, look at IQ. And Charles Murray, well-known pundit, who actually is rather sympathetic to multiple intelligences, will also say, you know, if you have, if you want one statistic about who's going to make it in the world that you know better than I, world of economics and, and finance and investment, you know, give me their IQ. Uh, last thought, um, the IQ test is really best for predicting who would be a good law school professor. Because professors in law schools have to be very good in language, very good in logic, and nobody gives a damn if they can hum a tune or if they can find their way to the bathroom, uh, or even if they have good understanding of themselves. Once you become a lawyer and you have to work in a courtroom or work with other people, then the other intelligence has become important. Is there any research that shows that law professors, that high IQ is correlated with being a good law professor? <laughs> I would be surprised if that wasn't the case. But about 25 years ago, I was brought together by the admissions of the major law schools, and they said, we'd like you to create a different test than the LSAT, which is the law school aptitude test. And I finally, I, I actually changed the discussion with one question. I said, are you willing to change law school? And what I was saying there is, is law school, particularly, again, using movies, you know, the 1L example, is a place for language and logic. And if that's what you're cultivating in law schools, then the IQ test is pretty good. As you probably know, many law firms now have clinical law practice. Um, often that's public interest law, but it's also you know, working personally with clients, not just with spreadsheets. And of course, that requires different kinds of intelligence. And probably the people who invited me were interested in a test which would get that kind of ability. Also, 
and this is really in, in my own lifetime, in medical school, now we're beginning to see much more importance attached to clinical abilities, to um, ability to synthesize things, by which I mean not just chemicals, but ideas, um, being able to have good relationships with the family. And so while I don't know, particularly know about the, the graduate school for getting into medicine, to the extent it's simply a, a, a souped up IQ test, it wouldn't make for good physicians. It's interesting because it seems like, let's say from kindergarten through 12th grade, if you're good at math or linguistic intelligence, you kind of move ahead and you succeed and your teachers encourage you, your parents encourage you, you go to good colleges, you get hired at good jobs. But like you say, there's many intelligences. If someone maybe is not as good at mathematical intelligence, but is good at musical intelligence or body kinesthetic intelligence, how do it's sort of like they have to be extra good so that their skills are noticed in order for these skills or these intelligences to be developed. And, and it seems even from early childhood, the educational system in that sense could be broken. I agree with that. Uh, and if you were to look around the world, um, you would see in, in every country where people have heard of my ideas, there's a number of schools, I would say a small number of schools, which really pay much more attention to the range of intellectual capacities and try to find more of a niche for people who may not be so good in school topics, but who are very good interpersonally or very good spatially or very good artistically. But um, especially in, in, in our country, where there's very little government support for, let's say, artistic activities, um, then it's much more difficult for those people to make a living. I don't know where you're living. Uh, but if you're in New York, you know, there the, the thousands and thousands of young people who want to make it as actors or as musicians or um, as dancers. And it's more difficult than if they go to Western Europe, where there is national support underwriting for you know, um, art in, in, in every community. I mean, most Americans wouldn't believe this, but if you go into Italy, you know, there are dozens of opera houses in cities we haven't heard of where people make a perfectly decent living because it's underwritten by the government. But of course that's called socialism and it's bad. Um, and so we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it here. And you probably know every year <laughs> the Congress spends more time arguing about the amount of money given to the National Endowment of the Arts, which is probably less than 200 million than given to the Defense Department, which is probably six or 700 billion. But that's a reflection of our, uh, of our values. And there's a famous anecdote about Winston Churchill during the Second World War when England was Britain was suffering. They they, they said, you know, what well, we really we really should cut the budget to the um, uh, to to the um, Tate Gallery and to the National Gallery. And um, Churchill has said to have responded, "And then what exactly are we fighting for?" Yeah, that's a good quote. Who or not? It's a it's a brilliant statement. You know. And, and it's interesting because you're, you're right, to your point, whether you call it socialism or capitalism is actually not the point. It's, it's more like, are you going to spend $2 trillion on a war <laughs> or are you going to spend it on education and developing the innovation that has always driven this country further? And innovation comes from all sorts. There's, you know, this gets into your ideas of synthesis, how in, in modern society, you know, solving a math equation take seconds now on a computer. You don't necessarily need that, in, or you need that intelligence, but not maybe in the way we used to. Now we need to synthesize all these different types of intelligence to really reach potential and have our value in society. Yeah, well, I said earlier, I kind of backed into multiple intelligences because of my work with brain damaged patients and with children, because I would so often see somebody who was very strong in one area, but not particularly notable in other areas. It's the same thing about synthesizing. Uh, I've always been aware, at least peripherally, that I'm a synthesizer, whatever that means. But when I decided to write an autobiography, a memoir, I realized that my own mind, good or bad, wasn't particularly well described by multiple intelligences. For better or for worse, I'm kind of a typical professor. I'm pretty good at language. I'm pretty good at logic. And the fact that I'm in music, I get extra credit for that, but it doesn't, <laughs> my students don't have to listen to me play the piano. Uh, but I realized that what made me distinctive from 95% of academics was 
first of all, I didn't particularly write articles, I wrote books, but also I wasn't somebody who got interested in the particular thing and went deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Um, if anything, I like to start something and then toss it to other people. But what I seemed to do well was to synthesize, and that is to take lots and lots of information in my mind, mull it over, try to organize it in various ways, try it out uh, with various people, and then finally, you know, stick my neck out and say, all right, this is my synthesis, whether it's about intelligence or creativity or leadership. These are all things that I've written books about. Um, so the old joke comes from a play by Moyer, who said, you know, he had this uh, uh, Monsieur Jordan who said, you know, I've been speaking prose all my life, but I never realized it. Uh, Howard Gardner realized he'd been synthesizing all his life, but he'd never been aware of it. And then I had an aha, which is, if any field should tell us about synthesizing, it should be psychology, because psychology is interested in the mind. And clearly, whatever else, uh, else synthesizing is, it's a cognitive, it's a mental process. And yet, if you look carefully through the psychological literature, in fact, I just went through an excellent 600-page book on developmental psychology, there's almost nothing about synthesizing. And I think I can tell you why. It's sort of related to what we were talking about with relationship to IQ tests. One reason we have IQ tests is because in a half an hour, an hour, you can give somebody his or her IQ. We like psychologists, we like to study things you can study in the lab for half an hour. So James, I wanted to know whether you're good in memory. I give you some nonsense syllables. I give you some meaningful strings of words. I might show you some pictures. And then I come back in half an hour and see how well you remembered it. And I give you a memory score. Synthesizing isn't something that you can simulate in the lab in a half an hour. Indeed, I was influenced many years ago by a great psychologist, not particularly well known, Howard Gruber, another Howard, who spent 15, 20 years studying Charles Darwin, wrote brilliantly about Darwin, spent another 15 or 20 years studying the most important developmental psychologist, most people will have heard of him, Jean Piaget, how he died, and so he never got to write that book, but it takes years to understand synthesizing, which is why we psychologists have so little to say about it. Now, as you, as you alluded, uh, synthesizing now is done you know, by algorithms and AI and computing, uh, and so we, maybe we'll never have to do it because machines will do it, but I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. Well, let's take like some, some other examples of synthesizing, like Steve Jobs seems like a classic example, the founder of Apple. So he had a certain design aesthetic. He had artistic, musical intelligence. And for him, the design of the initial Apple computer and later products was very important. But clearly, he also had a mathematical intelligence. He had some sort of interpersonal intelligence <laughs> at different extremes at parts of his life. But it was, it was an intelligence that, that cultivated him to, to lead several companies into being worth billions of dollars. You know, and you could argue maybe he had other types of intelligence. So that seems like an, a, a classic example of synthesis. Another one might be today's example of Elon Musk, where he has some mathematical intelligence, some linguistic intelligence. And again, he's able to start these variety of companies that seemingly have nothing to do with each other and connect the dots to make them, to make them work. I mean, and I'm giving business examples, but Winston Churchill is a great example where he clearly had interpersonal, probably spatial, and you know, you mentioned his 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 quote about the the art of England. He had some sort of artistic and musical intelligence. So it seems like definitely success, whether now or in the past, is geared towards people who are are good at this synthesis. Okay, well, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, that's at my age. Which no, I think be. you should lie to me. <laughs> yeah, um, I've been studying synthesizing in different people. Um, and it may eventually be a book if I make it. And I've not had much trouble understanding synthesizing in academic areas and in artistic areas. Um, but I've had a lot of difficulty with, I would say, the, the computer mog moguls, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, not, not just Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, but uh, um, Jeff Bezos. Um, and Bill Gates uh, and whoever founded Twitter and so on. Um, and that's because um, 
as people who are in the entrepreneurial world, um, it's not just ideas. It's not just even finding people who can complement your ideas the way that Steve Wozniak did Stephen Jobs. It's also what it means to, you know, to start a company, to run a company, to screw up a company, as they often do. In Musk's case, and Jobs too, becoming a public personality. In Bill Gates's case, probably more against his will. And so to me, uh, and uh, this is the honest part, this is kind of metasynthesizing. This is putting together not just your thinking, but your business capacity and your ability to speak to uh, thousands and thousands of people, millions of people. I mean, Musk has more followers than, than God. Um, and I'm finding this very difficult to, to put together. I'm an admirer of Walter Isaacson, who probably read his books. I don't know that he ever uses the word synthesizer, but he's clearly attracted to synthesizers, whether it's Leonardo da Vinci or um, Benjamin Franklin or uh, Jennifer Doudna, the, the, the biologist. But I guess the intersection of business and commerce and being a public personality with what it takes to have breakthrough ideas, I'm finding that my own thinking doesn't really uh, encompass that adequately. But you raised the question, so what do you think? Well, I think they're all doing synthesis to a degree, right? So, so from what I understand from reading your works, that all of these intelligences, it's a spectrum. It's not like somebody has zero of one and a hundred of another. Everybody has all of these intelligences to, to some extent or other. And this, uh, someone who synthesizes is able to, to not perfectly, but, but somehow mesh these ideas together to form something unique. That's the, the unique intersection. The uniqueness of each person is based on how well they, they synthesize the intersection of all these intelligences. So you take Steve Jobs as an example. There were, let's take, let's take the, I, the iPod, the original device developed to hear, listen to music. Right. There were music devices before. There was MP3 players. There were, before that, there were Sony Walkman. But let's say the MP3 players. They were ugly. They had a name like MP3 player. No one even knew what that meant. And he made this beautiful little device that had no buttons on it that had thousands of songs in it. There's this white little thing that you, you could listen to every music you've ever loved in your life. So it seems like that is a pure synthesis of the math, computer-like aspect of it and musical intelligence and, and artistic. He made, he made the design. I mean, he managed the development of it, but he, 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 he had a certain design and artistic sense that exceeded many others. So that seems like a great example of, of using synthesis to create something unique that the world's never seen before. Yeah, the way I, Leonardo da Vinci would. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, if you were in my research group, I would ask you to think about the following question. <clears throat> when Trump first became known, like in, you know, to ordinary people in 2014 or 2015, people said to me, you know, what kind of intelligence does he have? And in a vague attempt to be clever, I said, I think he has media intelligence. Um, and I think I was right. Uh, uh, I don't think that Trump has any particular ability to understand other people. He knows how to manipulate them. But he's brilliant at, uh, you know, appearing in the medium, whether it's uh, huge clouds or whether it's on Twitter or whatever his, his new uh, medium is. He's very, very good at doing that. And that's the kind of intelligence which, I'm, which I find difficult to understand. Because I don't think we evolved as a species to be able to communicate with millions of people. We evolved as a species to be able to contribute our family and, and maybe a few people around us. And I think that um, this is where I, I distinguished Bill, jo um, um, sorry, um, Bill Gates or indeed Mark Zuckerberg, um, who I don't think have particular media intelligences per se, though they understand the importance of that from people like Jobs and Musk, who seem to become personalities in themselves. Uh, and they're sort of having, they're having interactions with the world in which those other people don't. And uh, to me, this is, this is part of Trump's genius. He also, you know, he's communicated with millions of people, even though he probably would fall flat on his face if he had a dinner conversation. That's what I don't understand. So can you explain it to me? I, I don't know if I can on, on Trump, but it could be that interpersonal intelligence, not intrapersonal, but interpersonal intelligence could expand to, you know, what you're calling media intelligence. 
what is media intelligence, but talking to one person, but having millions of people relate to it. So nobody ever actually speaks to millions of people. Like you and I are speaking right now one-on-one, -on -one, but hundreds of thousands of people might listen to this conversation. And we both have a sense having communicated with people before and, and, and having some degree of linguistic intelligence and interpersonal intelligence that how we can communicate so other people could relate. And how they relate maybe is, again, a, a synthesis of other types of intelligence we have and, and what we're trying to communicate. But I, it seems that that's kind of interpersonal intelligence. Okay, I think that's, I think that's a good answer. Um, I, will use a, I won't use a counterexample, but something that was easier to understand. I used to go to an event where Bill Clinton spoke every year, and he was a masterful speaker. And you could have 500 people in the room, and um, um, Bill Clinton would say something, and one person would frown, and he would somehow notice that, and he would adjust his next sentence. That I can understand. It's more the dealing with hundreds of thousands of people and being able to speak to them. That's more difficult, but maybe a better answer for both of us is um, what makes a movie work? And even though you know, we don't think of Trump particularly as a movie person, he clearly has watched thousands of movies and he, he was a television star for many years. And maybe that's where his, we might, maybe we could call it a McLuhan intelligence because you know, Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. And maybe that's, that's what he has. Bill Clinton has something that's easier for me to understand, which is just a very good antennae for a large group. Um, but Trump and, and Elon Musk, that, that's more mysterious, but that's what makes scholarship interesting is something where you feel is a phenomenon, but you don't understand. That's but why. Like, but even even setting aside their their media aspects, I mean, again, like the the Apple computer is this is this synthesis between like design and computing. There were computers before. There were microcomputers before the Apple computer in 1977, 1978, but none with such an efficient sense of design. And I'm just using Steve Jobs as an example, but you know, there's exa other examples in the, in the business world. Steve Jobs is a great example just because of the combination of art with computing and, and understanding both sides of that very well. But you know, you, you mentioned something earlier about how we evolved. These different intelligences evolved with the brain and almost that's what characterizes them a little bit as an intelligence as opposed to a feature of another intelligence. And is it different parts of the brain specialize in these things? And synthesis also probably evolved with it. But why do you think, for instance, musical intelligence evolved with humans? I don't have a, a good answer to that. It appears that the musical instruments go back 30 or 40,000 years and natural language as we speak it uh, you know, goes back that amount of time as well. I suspect that both language and music um, evolved because they could be effective at giving messages. Mm. But um, musical messages, uh, as we all know, are very good for motivating people, but they're not good for saying, you know, take, go 30 steps in one direction and then take left, or I'm going to sell you five, five, car, five camels if you give me a, a true hippopotami. And so, you know, whether, there's an, whether there's an initial common, let's say, symbolic faculty from which language and music, and for that matter, artistic symbols or drawings emerge, we don't know. But we do know that, uh, you know, even going back tens of thousands of years, these, these are semi-separate faculties. Um, and uh, I think that uh, music, I mean, this is probably closer to the question that you're asking, um, music obviously you know, can signal things, but I think its major work is really emotional and spiritual. Um, I'm somebody who's very secular in my own life. Um, and yet uh, I play the piano every day for an hour and it's the closest thing to spiritual for me. And it's also, I listen to music all the time. I made it lower <laughs> for this hour. And, uh, you know, poetry moves in that direction. Poetry also is more emotional, but a lot of language is simply to get information across. So they're going, they're going down different routes, so to speak. And many people are interested in dance because uh, dance does the same thing with music, but with a bodily aspect which uh, is very different than simply playing an instrument.
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Let's say you have high musical intelligence or, or high bodily, you know, you, you mentioned in some of your writings, Michael Jordan having high bodily kinesthetic intelligence. And yet, you know, Michael Jordan famously didn't make his junior varsity team in basketball when he was in high school, when he was like in ninth or 10th grade. And he worked, then he worked hard at it every day, practicing, waking up earlier than everyone else, staying at the gym later than everyone else, and eventually became the superstar athlete we we know today. And um, I wonder how much, even if you have an intelligence, where's the role of talent versus hard work? And you've, you've written about talent before and, and how we, you know, not only, you know, why do people have talent? What is talent? But sometimes it's important where they are. Like if someone's in a certain country, it might not be recognized that they're a, a genius at music because there's no musical instruments and, and so on. So, but, but what's the, where do, where do talent versus hard work play in, in multiple intelligences? Well, you can have the multiple intelligence theory as I have without a perspective on the question you're asking. But to me, I'm absolutely convinced that there's a genetic aspect to talent uh, and that most of us could practice the cello every day for our lives and we would never be anything like Yo-Yo Ma and the same thing for Michael Jordan or uh, 
anybody who's outstanding in an area. I just read the um, biography of Sylvia Plath, the poet. I mean, she was writing interesting poetry when she was five or six years of age. Uh, you can't make kids do that. My wife, Ellen Winner, has studied geniuses, um, and she says uh, geniuses have a rage to master in an area, and that is they're essentially born to want to be able to do something really well, better than anybody else. And uh, so whatever, whether it's chess or music or dance or poetry, there's certain kids where you really can't stop them. Full stop. <laughs> um, clearly, having the, the genes is not enough. You have to have discipline. You have to be able to deal with failure. You have to be able to learn lessons so that you, you don't repeat the mistakes of the past. But I don't believe for a minute this 10,000 hours will do it. Um, first of all, I don't think it will do it. But who's going to work for 10,000 hours if they're not getting better? I mean, I was a good young pianist. Every week we would get together, maybe every month, I don't remember, with the other young pianists, and we would play for the teacher. It was kind of obvious who was getting better, <laughs> who hadn't practiced, and so who, who would continue doing it if uh, they were just getting further and further behind. And anybody who's played golf or baseball or um, you know, taken ballet um, or chess would know that uh, some people just catch on right away and they're at the next step. And uh, you, I've read all the biographies of the people that you that you talked about, and uh, you know they may Steve Jobs may not have been good in school and may not have liked it that much, but he certainly was already light years ahead of people in his interest in machinery and computing and uh, in the arts too, you know, calligraphy and stuff like that. So even though it makes us all feel good to think that it's grit, in the absence of the right genes, uh, the most you can hope to be is okay. And you're never going to be a, a prodigy or a genius. One thing they all seem to have in common is they, they are very good at learning how to learn. So Michael Jordan, for instance, knew what he needed to practice in order to get better. And he seemed to instinctively know that. And that might be the, his bodily kinesthetic talent or high intelligence at work and so on for all of these other people. Or is there something separate where is, is learning how to learn, like meta-learning, is that its own intelligence or is that just common? If you have high intelligence in one of these different intelligences, the talent part is learning how to learn in that intelligence? I think that's a great question. And if you were a graduate student, I would help you figure out how to get some um, acreage on. Some I'm getting five PhDs in this conversation here. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that uh, the best teachers, the best mentors can signal to young people what to pay attention to, what to ignore. And uh, it's the capacity of young people to pick up those hints and internalize them quickly that spells a difference. And I would say I have experience here because I taught for 40 or 50 years and had so many doctoral students, I can't even remember them. Um, and a student comes in with an outline and a draft of a paper or even just a, an idea. And you say something to some students and next week when you come back, you can say the same thing. You know, it's like when you're out the other, or they tried and they couldn't work. And others not only got what you said, but they can figure out the next thing that you would say. One teacher said that the student, she was all put together. All I had to do was avoid screwing her up. I think that we don't know nearly enough about what you're calling meta-learning or metacognition, what it is that enables some people with the, the least amount of cueing to, to know what to do next. And here's where some of these um, American presidents who came from unlikely circumstances, Obama, Clinton, but I'd also say Nixon, uh, who I did not have much use for, but these people had nothing going for them that would become, make them become a president, let alone you know, Abraham Lincoln, but somehow, you know, they would watch things, they would read things, and just the slightest hint would allow them to move to the next stage. Uh, and it's it's just it's incredible. And I think that's probably true. I've been reading some stuff, as most people have, about these autocrats around the world. Uh, we have one in our country, but uh, they have in Brazil and Philippines and Hungary and uh, maybe in Britain, uh, certainly in Russia and China. Um, and many of them were not born with a silver spoon in their mouths, you know? Um, but somehow they were in groups. You could say something about Lenin and Stalin, and they just picked up stuff 
with lightning speed and moved on to the next step. And I'm sure that no matter how good the tutoring was for 50 other people in their cohort, they wouldn't have ended up becoming Stalin or Mao or Xi Jinping or uh, Putin. Yeah, so, so, but it's an interesting thing because maybe many of these autocrats, uh, you know, had some sort of ability at synthesis where they were able to understand, you know, linguistically and logically kind of the, the, you know, populist state of mind of their country at the time. And then they had the interpersonal skills to interpret it in a different, unique, unique way. And, you know, I'm wondering whether I, you're- I, I, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, the person whom I most admire from the last thousand years was Mahatma Gandhi. And my teacher, Eric Erickson, who was a great psychoanalyst, was, he said of Gandhi, he psychoanalyzed the Indian nation and figured what it needed. And the deeper you get into Gandhi, the more profoundly you find that statement. So I think you're right. Uh, I mean, Putin and Xi Jinping are not there by accident. Indeed, Trump is not there by accident. Um, it's because at some level, they have a sense of what parts of the country are um, striving for, and they're able to put it together in a way that makes sense to people, whether it's through an open election. I think Viktor Orban and Hungary originally got in through an open election, but then you know they tightened the screws quickly. And and so whether whether one's an autocrat or an inventor or an artist or an athlete, clearly synthesis is needed to succeed. And and you could even be only quote unquote adequate at a range of intelligences, but if you're good at synthesis, you're going to rise and shine. And so I guess the how-to question I have is. How does one get better, do you think, at, at synthesis? Like what, how do you practice synthesis? You actually, you took my mind in a slightly different direction, but I'll try to come back to your question. Um, you know, Moses was one of the great leaders, presumably, but he couldn't speak. Right. So he had a brother named Aaron. And whether this is true historically, it doesn't matter. You know, there are people who aren't very good speakers. Somebody said Condoleezza Rice was George W. Bush's mind. And linguist part of synthesis james is knowing what you're not good at and how to supplement that or complement that with somebody else so that's the byway and one direct answer to your question is that i think it should be part of education and the first thing in education should be awareness that this is a faculty that is important and underestimated and understudied i mean I, and when i went to school and maybe when you went to school too we wrote book reports and book reports was kind of a synthesis um, and we've got a grade on it, but I don't remember anybody ever analyzing with us what made for an effective good re book report, comparing two with another in degrees of comprehensiveness, depth, and uh, facility of expression and opening up new questions and so on. So I would say just being aware of synthesizing is the first thing. And then if there are kids, I'll use myself as an example, who are sort of good at this, letting them know that it's something uh, of value and that uh, it should be cultivated. In my memoir, Synthesizing Mind, um, I talked about how I hated graduate school because in graduate school, I was being asked to be narrower and narrower. And meanwhile, I wanted to be broader and broader. And I was lucky I found a mentor who understood that about me. So in other words, it shouldn't be seen like bad breath. It should be seen as something that could be encouraged. But then um, I think that synthesis depends so much on what field you're working on what field you're trying to work in. And as I said earlier, I understand synthesis much better within academic fields or within art than I do in business or politics, where it seems to involve so many different sectors. And I think one reason that Franklin Roosevelt was such a um, effective president was because he had access to people with many different kinds of talent. He used them, and I think used them is the right verb. He didn't let any of them dominate him. Uh, uh, and if people were pains in the butt, like Joe Kennedy, he sent them away so they wouldn't bother them. So maybe this is kind of being a symphony conductor and a synthesizer. You need to be able to supplement the things you're not good at, but not let anybody else completely overwhelm you. This is relationship, I think, between Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. It was very complicated and probably more complicated than Bill Gates and uh, I forget who the name of his partner Paul was. Allen. Microsoft, yeah, Paul Allen. That that was, I think, less less um, pugnacious. Um, uh, so, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so you're saying people in, in part of synthesis is outsourcing the intelligences that you might not be good at. So you synthesize other people's intelligences into your own. Right. I mean, one of the things I discovered when I began to develop these ideas was there was no point of being in a group where everybody was very much like me. Um, and so I try when I'm doing anything serious to get different kinds of minds involved. And with my own working group, which is wonderful, I have to be careful not to, um, you know, be dominant. And I've learned, and my wife would probably say it took a long time, I've learned to pick up even the expressions of people who might not be agreeing with me. And so I can say, well, James, what do you think? Or Robin, what do you think? Uh, and that often encourages them to, to, bring, things, to bring things out, which you, you hadn't, been, hadn't done before. And you know that one of the, you know, the great issues with people debate in this field is how much is genius an individual thing and how much is genius a group film, a group thing. And of course, you can find lots of evidence for each of those arguments. Um, nobody is alone, but everybody needs to have a lot of time alone. And people who can orchestrate that the best are in the best shape. And maybe, as you say, you know, the most successful political figures are people who are who are able to do that kind of orchestration over the long run. Yeah, and I wonder, like, let's say you're ranking each intelligence from one to five. Is it, do you think it's better for someone? And, and better is a is a subjective word or ambiguous word. But do you think it's better for someone to be a, a five at a few of these intelligences and one at the rest, or a three at all of them and be able to synthesize them all perfectly? Good question. Um, I think I can't answer it other than without referring to um, personality. And uh, I don't study personality, but it's clear that some people are relatively fine being alone most of the time. I'm one of them. And other people really feel the need to be involved with others and to work um, you know, cooperatively. And I think that if you're more of a loner like me, it's probably better to be very strong in one or two. Um, but if you value more collegial group work, then probably uh, it's you certainly feel better if you have a range of abilities and you can talk with other people who have a range of abilities. But it's, it's an empirical question. And so if we had measures of these things, we could actually take a look at it. Um, there's a great um, psychologist uh, who I encourage you to interview sometime, Dean Keith Simonson. Oh yeah, I know who I know who he is. He's written a lot about uh, talent and skill acquisition. Exactly, uh, he's at UC Davis, uh, um, and it would be a good question to ask him. The relative strength uh, is it better if you were God? <laughs> That's really your question. Would you rather give, better give somebody a five in one area and sort of low grades elsewhere, and they can they can call on other people they need it, or is it better to give people a three? And I don't think you can answer the question without knowing about the personality. Now, if you were a colleague of mine would say, well, Howard, were you born that way or did you become that way because you actually like to be alone? And that, I don't have the answer to that, that question. I'm not Greta Garbo. <laughs> but again, like let's take the Michael Jordan as, as an example. Clearly he has bodily kinesthetic intelligence and he was probably born with a lot. And then he loved doing athletic activities so much, he became one of the greatest athletes of all time. And so it's, it's hard to say always how much you're born with and how much you develop over time. Where, whereas I think one assumption of IQ is that your IQ stays the same no matter what, no matter how much you work at getting good at IQ tests, your IQ, the theory is your IQ stays the same. But it seems hard to measure these different multiple intelligences, which is maybe the point that why should they be measurable? But that, that probably makes it difficult to have empirical studies on them. Um. I agree. I agree with you that it's easier to say we should have studies than to do the do the studies. Um, I don't think anybody, even somebody who believes totally in IQ, thinks it's enough. I mean, I think anybody who has an IQ still has to work hard, and they still might fail. You have all these games of giving the IQs to all the presidents. So we might say the having an intellectual potential or a or an athletic potential of a sufficient sort is necessary. But it doesn't make up for working really hard and being able to deal with failure and be able to learn from other people and so on. Nobody is born 
being a five for the rest of their life. Whereas they're born is much more of a potential to be a five if everything goes reasonably well. And by the way, most prodigies do not end up doing something creative. And this is, again, my wife, Ellen Winter's work. Most prodigies end up being like adults when they're young. So whereas we might say most people reach their level when they're 20 or 25, the chess prodigy or the piano prodigy or the uh, um, golf prodigy is there by age 10. But that doesn't mean they go out to do something original. That's, very, that's a very different gene. It's not really a gene at all. It's a, it's a very different inclination. It's inclination to want to step out, try something new, be prepared to fail, try it again, and so on. It's a very different kind of skill. And I'm sure you must know that in your own business. Uh, um, risk-taking and learning from the risk is very different than getting 100 in grades in, in, in your courses. It's a very different kind of skill. So it's interesting. There's, there's these multiple intelligences, but then there's these kind of like other ancillary skills around the theory of multiple intelligences that you also need. For instance, synthesizing or the ability to come back from failure and not give up the ability, some degree of risk-taking, you know, but also a, a facility to imagine what the rewards might be given the risk. You know, Einstein took, took risks and, you know, came up with theories that may or may not have been proven later, but fortunately for him, they were proven later. Uh, so I, I wonder if this, again, if, if how you expand the list of intelligences, given that you know this, that, that, that risk-taking and failure and all these things are, all, are almost like a support system for these intelligences. Well, let, let me give you an anecdote, and then you can remind me of your question if I forget it. Um, <laughs> I came from a family that was loved education, but my parents didn't have higher education. Uh, they were victims of Germany, Nazism, and were lucky to escape with their lives. But when I was 15 or 16, my uncle Fred, who also didn't go to college, but who was kind of an intellectual, gave me a psychology textbook. I'd never even heard the term psychology, but he had a sense that I was interested in way before I did. What actually caught my attention was um, colorblind tests in the, in the psychology textbook, because I'm colorblind, but never understood why. And then when I saw the uh, colorblind Ishihara plates and what people saw and what I didn't see, I had some understanding. The reason I make this anecdote is you're asking a question about all of psychology, personality, character, emotion, will. These may be much more important than intellect and cognition, but what I study, and I you know you spoke to Steve Pinker, we, um, we, we basically study cognitive psychology. So we don't think that these things are unimportant. We think they're different. Um, and uh, part of what I was saying earlier, you could give uh, five, five people exactly the same palette of intelligences, but if you give them personality or different emotional or even different character, then they end up doing very different, different kinds of things. Um, mm. It's not just, so we don't want to expand MI theory, multiple intelligence theory, to call everything an intelligence. What we want to do is to say, oh, this is the best set of intelligences. Should we have a new one? I was corresponding with a seventh grader yesterday. Should there be computer intelligence? And I gave the seventh grader an answer. Um, but we don't want that to substitute for saying, you know, there are five dimensions in which human beings differ, like introversion, extroversion. And that's an important part of the, of the, of the mix as well. That's a different, it's just a different, it's a different chapter in that psychology textbook. I see. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And would you say memory also is in a separate area? Because one thing that occurs to me about all these intelligences is that even if you're a five in one of these intelligences, there's a crucial role memory plays in developing that potential. So if someone's a musician, they have to memorize, they have to be able to remember all the musical pieces before them that they you know, there's a saying, you stand, a great person stands on the shoulders of giants. And that's a reference really to memory. And yeah, I, I, one of the most controversial aspects of my theory is I don't think there's a single thing called memory. I think each intelligence has its own memory. And I would be a good example if I'm right, because I have good linguistic and musical memory. I have terrible spatial memory and a terrible bodily kinesthetic memory. And the fact that somebody's good at remembering one thing tells you absolutely nothing about whether they're good at remembering other kinds of other kinds of things. I'm kind of a savant when it comes to remember when people were born, but that doesn't generalize to any other kind of memory. I just happen to be good at that. I don't think my parents could have 
paraded me around at the circus. <laughs> but I, I'm better than most people remembering that. But doesn't mean I'm better remembering that the, you know, how much money I gave to a charity last week or what dance step I learned. You know, those are different kinds of memory. And now, from from an educational perspective, I mean, the way that ed- education is structured right now is, at least when I was a kid, you have like six or seven periods in a day. Each one lasted something like 41 minutes. And then you move from English, literature, to math, to science, whatever it is, to, to, to gym, you know, or physical education and, and so on. Do you think, how do you think that, I mean, this is a big question for the next minute, but how do you think roughly that could be changed to, to fit more your theory of multiple intelligences? And then you've written quite a bit about this, but, you know, just for the audience listening. Well, you're raising, you're raising two questions. Um, let me answer the one that I can answer easily. Um, I think that multiple intelligences has two primary educational implications. Number one, you should know as much about each learner as possible and help them learn in ways that they can learn well. And that's part of what I was talking about with my doctoral students and what worked with one and not with the other. Um, and the second thing is anything that's worth teaching should be taught in more than one way. Uh, and if you only teach something in one way, it means your own understanding is limited. So those are the major educational um, implications of MI theory. Um, and many of the other ones you read, I have no connections to whatsoever. Now, as far as the educational system is concerned, um, people in this country who are affluent with means, who live, uh, who can send their kids to independent schools or live in, in wealthy suburbs, um, you know, they, the kids tend to get an education which takes account individual differences and which uh, uh, you know has some uh, kinds of support for individuals who have trouble learning one thing or another. But you know, a large part of the population doesn't, and so that's one reason why America ranks way behind other educational systems from developed countries. I like to quip that America wants Massachusetts performance. Massachusetts is the best in the annual tests with Mississippi budgets. Um, And so I guess what I'm saying, James, is uh, I would change schools generally. The question of whether you have six or seven subjects seems to be a minor question to, um, is there some understanding of how young people learn, um, how to reach them, how to motivate them, how to want them to learn? Um, I think I noticed in my extensive research of three minutes about you that you were skeptical about sending kids to college. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Well, I've just published a book with Wendy Fishman called The Real World of College. Um, so anybody who's interested, there's 400 pages of what's going on in colleges. Where I would agree with you more than you might think is that many people are not ready for college and it's not a good use of their time or of college's time for them to go there. But I think every person who wants should eventually get the kinds of things that you get in a liberal arts education. But the book explains why that's a big challenge nowadays. But uh, I understand even Peter Thiel's students who get paid not to go to college sneak and take courses at Stanford, which certainly infirms his, uh, his theory. Well, I, I'm not against learning or education, but just to your point, like the structure of college, I don't think people get out of it what they potentially could. And that's, that's a structural thing. That's a good point. As you know, Steve Jobs went to a few schools, never really clicked there, but he got a lot of some of the courses that he went to. And also yeah. got a lot out going to India. So yeah, but again, he's pretty privileged. Most of us can't move from one campus to another and spend a year in, in India. Yeah, that's, that's true. So uh, what's, your, what's your book on college called? Because I, I, I want to get that right now. <laughs> it's called The Real World of College. Um, let me see what the subtitle is. Um, I'll show it to you. I always forget my subtitles as well. <laughs> what higher education is and what it can be. But um, either Wendy Fishman or I, or both of us, if you want to yeah. look at the book and come on and talk about this, we've got lots to say on the topic. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. That, that'd be great. So look, Dr. Howard Gardner, thank you so much for talking to us about your theory of multiple intelligences and answering my many questions as inane as they might have been. And I, I super appreciate it. And I look forward to having you back uh, to talk about college, which is one of my favorite topics. I don't know whether you intended it, but I think this was a good synthesizing conversation. I'm covered a lot of ground. We put a few things together. We raised a few questions. So I appreciate your time and that of 
Robin and Jay. Excellent. Thank you.